And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and the intra-team battle at Mercedes will be one of the big talking points of F1 2023 after George Russell beat teammate Lewis Hamilton in the standings last year. But where does the balance of power really lie between them, and just how much more is there to come from Russell? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, say hello to you first. How's business? Business? um, Average, but... um yeah, more importantly, health's okay, and uh, and you know, I'm enjoying life. What about you? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, similar, I guess, similar. Just nice to have a new year and a new F1 season to uh, to look ahead to. That's always good. Scott, you're looking slightly sceptical there. No, I'm massively amused because um, I just really enjoy the fact that um, Mark looked initially taken aback by... Uh, the question, but then not as nowhere near as aba- as taken aback as you were that Mark then turned it on you, and you had just had no idea what to say. <laughs> I'm not used to participating in these introductory questions. I just <laughs> fling meaningless platitudes at you, and uh, and and hope for you to uh, to respond. But but speaking of uh, of such things, we have got to Scott discuss our live show because that I am looking forward to. It's just over a month away, February the twelfth. That's a Sunday, Kings Cross in London, part of Sport Pod Live. Plans are coming together. It's going to be quite an exciting show. I think we've got about 75-odd minutes. We'll hang around afterwards. We've talked about all the things we want to do, your plans for Scott's people, your planned song and dance routine, which I'm still going to keep talking about in the hope that it'll force you to do it. So there's a lot to look forward to there. Yeah, I guess um, I, I'd be very wary of doing this just on the off chance that I end up absolutely regressing it. But it would be good. It would be amusing if we... Um, set some kind of uh, ticketing goal uh, to actually get a song and dance routine over the line. But I'm not going to hold myself to that because otherwise I, I fear I'm gonna just going to set myself up for colossal embarrassment. But it is going to be really fun. We're Obviously, I think we're going to be 
not fully in the middle of launch season by then, but we're going to be right on the brink of some of the really interesting teams launching their cars. The, the, the live show will be the day before we see the Aston Martin and the McLaren, for example. So, yeah, we're going to be, we are going to be right in the middle of season preview fever. So I'm looking forward to that. And I think there's going to be lots for us to talk about. And yeah, really hope that um, if we get a good turnout, obviously hearing what everyone has to say, both during the show, because I'm sure we'll have a bit of audience engagement, but also afterwards, if we can have a chat with everybody afterwards as well, that'd be quite fun because there is going to be a lot to get into. Yeah, we're trying to work out a few different ideas to bring into the live show and people may even see me blundering in the in the introduction, which is normally edited out. But uh, if it's live, then you will see it, although it'll be edited out in, uh, in anything anyone else hears from it. But yeah, we're going to try and make it a worthwhile show for everyone there. So head to sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. That link is in the description and you can get your ticket. So that's Sunday, February the 12th. It's an afternoon show, so it won't take up your whole evening. Well, let's get on to the matter at hand that we're going to talk about in this podcast, Mark. We should start off with an appraisal of Russell's performance during 2022. It was no great surprise that he was at home at the front of an F1 field, but fourth in the championship, a maiden victory and pole position ticked off. 35 points more than Hamilton it was a hugely impressive start to his front rank F1 career. When you drill down into it, how did he stack up really against Hamilton? Very well, um, predictably. I think there was... I don't think, uh, um, without wishing to speak for you both, I don't think there was any surprise within um, our little team that he did as well as he did. He was um, The signs were all there in his three years at Williams. The signs were there in his stand-in drive at Sakir in 2020 um, that he was an absolute world-class driver. And if you put him in a potentially winning car, he was capable of winning Grand Prix. Unfortunately, the car wasn't as good as um, was initially expected but um they got somewhere close by the end and sure enough he delivered his mid grand prix victory in brazil um yes he out he appointed lewis um that's flattered a little bit in the sense that he got a better break with things like safety cars and liability but not not wholly um he probably did have a better first half season than lewis lewis probably did have a better second half season notwithstanding that he didn't win a grand prix um, in qualifying where you could make a valid comparison, um, the gap was tiny as an average. It was the smallest in the entire field. It was um, just over a hundredth of a second in Hamilton's favour, although in numbers of times that they each out-qualified the other was 11-5 in Hamilton's favour. But it was, um, you know, when Russell had did it the other way around, the gaps were quite big at the beginning of the season. So it averaged out to that tiny margin overall. Um, there were weekends where Lewis was quicker. There were weekends where George was quicker. But I think there's scope for improvement from both um, Lewis because I think there's definitely an element of um, Lewis took a sort of double psychological hit from a, how the outcome had been decided in Abu Dhabi 21 as he came into the new season. I'm sure he would have been hugely motivated. And then he gets in the car and it's nowhere near. So I think it took probably a little while for that to play out, probably even subconsciously in his in his head. And whereas George was coming in as the new boy and regarding dis, disregarding the fact that it wasn't as good a car as Mercedes had hoped, it was a far better car than anything he'd raced. Yeah, it, 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 notwithstanding that secure one-off, 
Um, and he was just absolutely determined to maximise everything that, he's, you know, that was at his disposal. And he was hugely motivated regardless. So I think, um, yeah, that was probably um, goes some way to explaining the very strong first half of the season that Russell had. But I think they will both improve in their personal performances if the this year's Mercedes is uh, somewhere near the pace. I will play devil's advocate at this point because we had... Russell just behind Hamilton in our top 10 drivers of the season. I think we all had that ranking order with Russell marginally behind Hamilton, not by much, as Mark just explained. But Scott, we've had plenty of people responding and saying that's ridiculous, that the points table doesn't lie and that we're just making excuses for Hamilton or or whatever. So is that what we're doing? Are we uh, building up what Hamilton's doing and underestimating Russell? Um, no, I don't think so, because I think it's similar to the Alonso Ocon situation at Alpine. The, the points do lie sometimes. That that is just that is just how it is. Um so, sometimes you can get um you can get a big haul of points somewhere down the line that just because circumstances line up and you can lose points through no fault of your own. That goes for every single teammate pairing uh, along the grid. That there there can be just swings in results. The difference is obviously um I think the difference was sort of big enough to make it look like, um, and it certainly wasn't just one result that swung it in Russell's favour, but there was obviously a chunk of the season at the beginning, the first third of the year or so, where um, Hamilton was just yo-yoing in terms of not necessarily his own personal performance, but certainly the form, how it manifested itself in qualifying and race results. And that is why, that's why it ended up skewed. And then, there were also results in the second half of the season where Hamilton was just objectively the faster driver on balance, but there were just certain circumstances that went against him. You know, he finished behind him, Monza and Zandvoort, for example, because of grid penalties and strategy respectively. And he obviously had his retirement in Abu Dhabi, which contributed to the extent of the points deficit as well. So no, it's not about, um, it's not about trying to cover for Hamilton or, or play down George. It's just looking beyond the headline numbers and, trying to judge the season as a whole. That that said, George was very impressive. Like Mark said, I think he dealt with the the particularly low part of Mercedes' season very well, arguably better than Hamilton did the first few races in particular, apart from Bahrain where Lewis was very strong. Um, he didn't yo-yo anywhere near as aggressively as Hamilton did. I think one thing George is very good at as well, which he's adapted to very quickly in life in a team and a car that can usually get into Q3, even a car as weird as last year's Mercedes was, is he's also, I think, very good at getting the first lapping in qualifying. Whereas one of the things you see from Hamilton, which I always found absolutely fascinating and generally is super impressive, is Hamilton can have these little mistakes creep in through practice, maybe Q1, maybe maybe even Q2, but by the final run in Q3, when it all matters, like Lewis can just pull together this incredible, incredible lap. And once or twice last year, you saw him be out-qualified by Russell or start further down because Russell got the lap in first and then the way it played out meant you didn't get that second lap or the second lap wasn't fast or, or whatever. So George was very, very good at that as well. And generally, his race performances were very consistent. Um, there, there was a point where he was, by his own admission, struggling to match Hamilton he was making some small mistakes and getting a bit messy. Um, but even then, the level was still pretty, pretty high. So whatever you take away from his season is a, is a very minuscule amount. He did, he did a fantastic job in 2022. Yeah, and I think the thing to remember as well is it's it's not a 
zero-sum game. There tends to be this belief that one teammate wins and the other one's a failure. But Russell was very, very close to Hamilton, considering who he was going up against. That's a great platform for him to build from. I think you can probably make a case that Russell's performance relative to Hamilton in 22 was better than Rosberg's was relative to Hamilton in 2016 when he won the championship. Obviously, also Hamilton's performance was a little bit different, different seasons, but that's kind of what we're talking about here. Russell was a big upgrade on Valtteri Bottas, I would say. That's the really important thing. But Mark, what sense did you get on what impact this had of this had on the balance of power within the team? Did it change anything? Does having a number one driver and a driver who might just get to also be number one status change the dynamic dramatically compared to what it was? I think it did change, not massively, but it did change. And I think um, that wasn't unexpected. You know, George wasn't taken on as a direct replacement for Valtteri Bottas. He wasn't taken on as someone expected just to be in a support role and there to pick up the odd win when Lewis fell foul of whatever. Um, he was taken on as the, 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 the team's future for the day when Lewis would stop. So, you know... He was part of the succession plan. So you, you don't take somebody on that you think is going to be a little bit off the pace for your succession plan. You take on someone you think is going to be absolutely as close as possible to your, your current um, team leader. Um, so I don't I don't think it was unexpected. They, 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 you know, he worked with them for several years. They knew exactly where he stood um, for a long time on pace. And I remember, oh, probably probably something like 2020, end of 2019 maybe, there was a test where both Bottas and Russell were, were both, both going to be um, driving the car. And I'd asked Toto in one of the sessions, are you seeing this as a, a bit of a head-to-head for the future? And he said, no, we know exactly where they both stand. And with a sort of a, a knowing look. And that that completely tallied with what was coming from inside the team on where Russell stood in terms of his performance. He was he was expected to be quicker than Bottas and more consistent than Bottas, and he delivered absolutely. So no, there was no um there was no sudden upset because there was no surprise. Lewis will have known exactly where George stood as well. You know, he's he's got access to the same information. And, you know, Lewis had made no secret for the last few years that um he can see Someday, the may the may he may feel he no longer wishes to continue. So yeah, he completely understands that the team will want a succession plan, and Russell was that. And um, if Russell had been no more than Valtteri Bottas as an average, he wouldn't have been seen. It would have been seen as a very disappointing season for him, and it would be question marks going into this season whether or not he absolutely delivered on his potential. Yeah, you're right. The job he's there to do is profoundly different and Hamilton's age is what that is all about. But certainly, Scott, we have to say, Russell did seem to fit in seamlessly. Yeah, he knows the team of old. He's done tests. He did that race weekend. He's been around the Mercedes environments for a while. But it's never quite the same when you're plugged in as a full-time race driver, is it? So there were still questions to be answered about exactly how he fitted in with the team, especially given he was coming from a Williams team where he was the focal point and the, and the top dog. And suddenly he goes and becomes the junior partner in a top team rather than the the lead driver in a struggling team. Yeah, and there's also an element of um, Russell's reputation for being quite a pushy character. Uh, um, I don't, I think in general, I think that was appreciated at Williams, but I know there were definitely times where I suspect 
Russell sort of put a few nose at noses out of joint with the way he 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 demanded stuff and the standards he set and and how much he was um focusing on on small details um now you can argue that that is probably a little bit of nature and nurture he that's partly what he's like as a person and i'm sure that was influenced by what he saw in his time at mercedes shadowing the likes of hamilton as their reserve driver and a test driver while he was making his way through the the upper echelons of the junior junior championships coming into a team like mercedes you've got to really be clever with how pushy you are when you do get shouty not literally but just you know when you start to be a bit more demanding when you want to make sure that your voice is heard and I'm absolutely convinced that the time Russell had within the team before that would have certainly aided that process um it would have made him more comfortable it would have made him a bit more in tune with how the team communicates the team would have been a bit more used to his character and the way he does things so I suspect that he did a very good job of being the apprentice early on, but I'm sure he also would have been quite forceful when he felt he needed to be. And I think we will get on a bit later to specific areas of improvement for 2023, but I suspect that will be something that increases this year. He can he can move out of that rookie in the team role and the apprentice role and start to sort of make his presence felt a, a little bit more. He he has learned a lot from Hamilton, not just in 2022, but before then as well. And now he now he's got his feet even more under the table as a as a race driver. I think he can sort of build on that from from this year onwards. And it's quite an interesting situation as well when a driver goes into a team as Russell did because that thing you were talking about about being pushy and fairly forceful and trying to push in the direction you think is right. It's a really valuable skill for a top-line star driver, effectively. But it doesn't always work if you're not at that level. Bottas, for example, couldn't do it in the same way because he was a good driver. He was performing at a good level, but he wasn't in that absolute elite tier. So it, it changes the way you have to do things. And that's kind of partly why you've got the whole nice guys finish second kind of thing. It's not necessarily about being a nice or a nasty person or anything as simple as that. It's just about what you can do and that could have backfired for Russell if he'd gone in and he'd been consistently not as quick and not performed at the level he did that would have worn pretty thin so there was potential for as seamless as the move to Mercedes might have looked until he's gone there and done it you can only have a high confidence it'll work not absolute certainty which I think what was impressive about last season was that he was able to go in do the job be the George Russell we know and actually not shoots himself in the foot by pushing too hard he's put himself in a position where he can realistically lead that team in the long term so yeah ticked a lot of boxes as well as getting those landmark first pole position first victory looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Scott, let's look back a bit because you first encountered George Russell when he was in his first season in cars in the BRDC F4 Championship in the UK. I remember you talking about him a lot at this stage. He obviously made a big impression. You were in your early days 
uh, working with uh, certainly working with me. So uh, I wasn't sure whether you were just overestimating him through enthusiasm or whether there was genuinely something there. But to your credit, you obviously were seeing something that was there. So what traits did you see developing and emerging in that campaign way back in 2014? Yeah, um, well, obviously, in hindsight, I'm, I'm I'm glad it turned out the way it did. Uh, I certainly wouldn't um, class myself as some kind of extraordinary driver talent scout. I think George was um, so impressive as a uh, as a young kid who's only 16 at the time that it, it didn't take a huge amount of paying attention to realise how good he was. Um, it's obviously the how good he can be that that's that that you're not totally clear on. There's a lot of fast drivers, and George was obviously one of them. But what I think stood out more than that was his um, his conduct off the track and how he carried himself. Um, he was he was very mature. Um, he's always been mature beyond his years. Uh, that was something that impressed um, that impressed me back in 2014. But it also impressed very very senior figures um, around motorsport. The likes of uh, Derek Warwick and Toto Wolff, for example, took notice of that at a very very early stage in George's career he could just he could he could carry himself with a certain authority he was he was very sharp technically gave good feedback didn't waffle on with his feedback didn't try to pretend he knew more about the technical side than he did it was just he he knew enough to convey what he was feeling and then was willing to work with the team to then try and improve that but wasn't saying like I've got this as my problem therefore we must do this to fix it he recognised where the team needed to step up and lead the solutions. George would just help identify the problems, um, but he was he was always very he always seemed to me to have a real grasp of the the bigger picture. Um, whether that was um, making sure that specific issues that he was struggling with within the car were were conveyed externally, there was a point mid season I remember he was absolutely convinced. He, there might be something wrong with his, cha- his chassis because there was a point in the season where his performance took a notable downturn and he was really struggling and he made his pitch basically to, to Lannan Racing, his team at the time. They they changed the chassis, I believe, and suddenly George's performances were, were right there again. So there was arguably a sensitivity there and a conviction in his his um, belief in that sensitivity that yes, I've identified a problem. Yes, I'm sure there is something to to fix here. Um, one of the stories I've told a few people over the years is um, at the end of the season, it was a really, really um, fierce and intense title battle. And um, in the penultimate round at Donington Park, George had clashed with one of his title rivals, Ralph Hyman, coming down the, the Craner Curves. And this being a BRDCF4 meeting, it wasn't you know, televised at the at the time. There were no TV screens in the media centre. So the only people who knew what had happened were the drivers and then the stewards afterwards because they checked the, the footage, the onboard footage of the cars. And um, this it got dragged out in the stewards for quite a while after the race. So I, I hung around. I, I was there, there working and, and I hung around afterwards because I wanted to hear what they had to say. And um, when I knew that the stewards hearing had finished, I went down to the Lannan truck to try and see if I could find George. And I saw him being driven away. Um, he was off. Um, it turns out he was going to, to the airport. I think he had a Hareth um, Formula Renault test or something like that to go to. But um, a few minutes after that, I got a message from him saying, oh, I saw you because um, he'd seen me as the, as he drove off. And he just said, oh, I, um, 
here's my number, um, call me if you need me to talk through the accident. So he just knew at that point, you know, the kid, he's 16 years old at this point, and he wanted to make sure, I was working for Autosport at the time, he wanted to make sure that Autosport had his version of events for because he knew that that would obviously influence what happened in terms of how it was reported. So all of this stuff, the off-track stuff was really impressive, but obviously on-track kind of spoke for itself. He was really quick, and I like the fact that he was um, he was capable in crunch moments. He was able to get it done. There was an he he won the BRDC four F title with a stunning pass. Um, I think actually, uh, of all things, considering where he is now, I think it was at I think it was through Hamilton Corner at Snetterton. I think that, I think it's Hamilton that's the fast left on the new layout, and that was on Hyman, a guy that he had clashed with in the penultimate round of the championship. Uh, got the move done there, that one in the championship. And then around that time as well, he went and did a Formula Renault Euro, Euro Cup guest outing in the season finale and beat Nick De Vries, the champion, won, won a race there and then went ahead to the McLaren Autosport Awards shootout and was absolutely stunning across the MSV F2, Mercedes DTM and McLaren GT machinery. His DTM runs in particular were absolutely superb. So yeah, he just... He was a driver that looked really, really good all the way through the year, on track and off track. And then just that that most brilliant of traits, which is just when it all came down to the crunch, who steps up and delivers? And every single time it was George. And I think it's important to remember this was before he was a contracted Mercedes driver. I know there's the feeling, obviously, he's been on this pathway to the Mercedes F1 drive. But in 2014, he wasn't on their books. He didn't become a proper junior drive for them until I think the start of 2017 although I think he had done a little bit of work with them obviously Mercedes were exposed to him through that evaluation test for for example for the McLaren All Support BRDC awards so he's still at this point in his career you're talking about making his pathway if you like rather than being led through it by Mercedes but Mark what Scott talked about there the character of Russell the way he does things I imagine that's very recognisable, the George Russell of today, isn't it? What Scott was just talking about with that that extra almost bite as a as a character, which you do see in drivers who can emerge as, as genuine top guns in F1 as, as champions. They've always got to have something about them, don't they? And that those th- those qualities as a as an individual, it's not just about being a fast racing driver. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. He's the the the, the, the steel is not very far beneath the the, the nice veneer. And he is a nice guy, you know, on a personal level, very nice guy. But the steel is never far from the surface, and you see that, and you see that in those moments. And he's just—he's so composed, and he's just, you know, clearly has a lot of spare capacity to think about every dimension of the of the of the job and the every aspect of. It. And he's also very self-critical. He knows, you know, that it's a very fine line between doubting yourself and um, knowing that there was a problem to pinpoint, which um, Scott touched on before. And, uh, you know, when he had that incident in Austin this year, with the first corner with uh, Carlos Sainz, you know, he recognised that he had a part to play in that and that it was at the end of a... a a run of three or four disappointing outings, and he just had a really, really good talk with himself, and came back following week in Mexico and was absolutely perfect. He was, he was. I mean, they ended up choosing the wrong tire, but he was, he was brilliant throughout that weekend in qualifying, and you know, he he, he was there for the rest of the year. And uh, yeah, the, the the ability to do that and to distinguish between 
am I doing something wrong or am I just not quite good enough and, and having those questions inside yourself the difference between that and yes I am and I've, I've thought about what it is I need to know and I now know what to do and I can bounce back out of this and come out the other side and having the inner confidence in your own ability to recognize those shades of gray and, and, and act accordingly these these very very impressive in that way and actually, it's a rare combination to have that awareness, be able to implement it, have that fundamental speed and ability as well to make it all work. Because there are drivers on the F1 grid who don't have that self-awareness and everything is an external problem. And people can guess who some of those ones are. And they will never make the progress that a driver like, say, Russell and others, most of the, the well, all of the best drivers actually have that that quality, that need to push themselves on to not give themselves excuses but combines that with being able to implement it because there are some who are drivers who understand what the problem is and what they need to improve, but they they can't. They can't string it together. So it, it's a rare combination. I, I do like the fact, Russell, I remember when he had that crash under uh, the safety car at Imola a few years ago in the Williams when he was on course for his first points and I remember speaking to him after racing, he said it was just amateur, just stupid mistake, and he was quite hard on himself. I remember writing a piece about that and, sort of talking about how big a mistake it was and sort of readers complain about, oh, it being really harsh, et cetera. It's like, well, that, that's what this is. If you're a driver who does that, you've got to be harsh on yourself and it doesn't mean you beat yourself up forever about it, but you have to be realistic. Yeah, you can say, okay, it's cold tyres or whatever. There are reasons why it happened, but you've got to take that and understand it and apply the lessons, not just shrug it off as if it doesn't matter and it was someone else's fault. It's also worth remembering that, that Russell has these high expectations of himself as well because of what he's gone through on the on his rise through the ladder to get his opportunity. So he he knows how hard he had to fight at different points to to make every next step he made. And when you've done that and then you do something that you acknowledge that you have um you're entirely responsible for in terms of messing up that will eat away at you because I think every success and every failure is heightened when you're a lot more aware of um, what's the best way to put it. But you understand, I think, the value of success. It's the stakes, isn't it? It's the stakes that are there and therefore what it's worth if you do achieve. Exactly. So, for example, when when George stepped up into Formula 3, proper Formula 3, not the version of Formula 3 we have now, um, he he misjudged how to take on Formula Three. He thought that he'd be better off being with a with a with a British team with with, with Carlin in, in in the first year and found it a lot tougher than it was. And then when he didn't win the title in the second year as well, he was worried he'd blown it and he thought that that might be the end of his single seater career. But he got the he got the support of um, Mercedes and then did the job in GP three and and then again in 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 Formula Two. So. He has had moments along the way where he's thought that this isn't going to go all the way to, to to Formula One, and I think now he's there. I think that's just given him. Uh, don't get me wrong. He, if you look at his um, his his background, I think he's. Um, I think it's fair to say he comes from a position of reasonable privilege. So, but but you find adversity in different forms, and it doesn't just have to be your background or your family's monetary situation. For for example, it can be other things along the way, and I think. That's that's the other good thing. I think 
and it ties in with what he learned at Williams as well, is there were points on George's junior single seater rise. And then again, when he got into Formula One, where things didn't go as he thought. So he hasn't had a perfect upwards trajectory on his way to getting that Mercedes drive. He's had a few bumps along the way. And I just think that's made him a better person and driver, more more equipped to deal with the um, the challenges that inevitably come in, in an elite sport. And it's fair to say with what you were saying there about his background, you know, while there was some cachet, you know, he wasn't a driver who was going to be able to buy his way into F1, whatever happened, was he? That That's not the level of uh, of support that was there automatically, was it? No, I think, I think that's absolutely, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think when you consider the Mercedes support that he had when he got into the sort of upper echelons of the junior categories to where, where he is now, I think he's just sort of processed everything that he's, been through, grabbed the opportunities that he has and just worked on and off track to make sure that the relationship is as good as possible. And then I think um, I think it was a no-brainer in the end for him to get into Formula 1 with Mercedes, but obviously it just wasn't quite that simple before that. Yeah, exactly. And you had to deliver, as you say, at every stage in order to achieve that. But Mark, once he got to Formula 1, he had those three years at Williams. The first of those was absolutely dreadful from a car perspective. Williams having its worst season. It was basically a class of two at the back of the grid, him and Robert Kubica, and Williams were struggling to put out two cars of, of, of equal level that year, which actually hurt both drivers, uh, despite how some might interpret it. But how valuable do you think that three years at Williams was for Russell in terms of easing him into Formula One, troubleshooting some of the areas where he was struggling, familiarising himself with having to run in the pack where he hadn't run so much in his junior career. How how much of a part has that played in weaving him into the driver he is today? I mean, any experience is always a positive, but I kind of feel he was kept there at least a year too long. Um, and then that, that was nobody's fault. I mean, Claire Williams... Um, Tied Toto Wolf down on the on the deal to three years. Why why wouldn't you? You know, you got a driver caliber, you want to hang on to him as long as you possibly can. And um, I believe there was a an approach made to Claire by Toto to get George a year earlier, you know, after that stunning stand, and he did at the end of 2020. And the price quoted was very high. And uh, I think Toto just reasoned well going to take them next year and I can you know I don't need to pay anything extra for, for him so it was it was just that but I, I think he was already at the end of at the end of 2020 he showed he was already at that level he was ready to deliver Grand Prix victories in a in a in a top car and um it, it won't have done him any harm being the, those three years in Williams but I think he could have been Getting on with the uh, with with the you know the the victories and the podiums and the fighting for championships um, earlier a year earlier um, I think he was absolutely ready by then. Would have given him a better first year in Mercedes in terms of results certainly if he'd gone earlier. But he did have that one outing in the Sakir Grand Prix in 2020, which he should have won. Obviously, he almost won that race twice, didn't he? Because he had the the loss of the lead, got it back, and then had the other problem with the with the tires under the safety car. So uh, yeah. He proved conclusively then he was capable of being a, a winning driver. But it was interesting in that period, wasn't it, Scott? Because I know there was some scepticism because we were doing quite positive coverage of Russell because he was impressing. Even in 19, it was clearly impressing, even though he was at the back of the grid. Obviously, he's against the Robert Kubica, who was not the Robert Kubica 
of old through no fault of his own. He was doing a great job for the circumstances, but he wasn't operating at his uh, his old very, very high F1 level. But you could see the class and also the process of what he had to learn because one of the things he struggled with that year was first laps as well. So even though he was driving a no-hoper car at the back and finishing 15th, qualifying on the back row, he was using that. Yeah, he was. Um, I think he was trying to take as many lessons from it as he could. It was a good. Um, it was a good way to come in with, let's say, less pressure. Because I think if you go to into a back of the grid team anyway, that's already a sort of soft entry into Formula One in one sense. But um, but this was a particularly aggressive manifestation of that. Obviously, as you mentioned earlier, with him and Robert being in a, a class of their own at the back of the field. Um, so that that was bad, but the the flip side of that is that you you're then in a it's a it's a thankless task, isn't it? Because you you either get absolutely smashed by Robert Kubica or beaten by Robert Kubica over the course of the season, and people say, well, this guy's no good because he's been beaten by Robert, who's got his injuries, and as you say, isn't the driver he was of old. So and and Williams is rubbish, but look at how far off they are. Like he's not impressed at all this season. Or you do what he did, which is smash Robert. But people say it's not the Robert of old, so that achievement doesn't mean anything. Oh, and look, he didn't get many good results that season and kind of gloss over the car part of things. So it's one of those situations where if someone doesn't really buy into you or, or, or wants to find holes to, to to poke in the argument that you're a good driver, you, you're just not you're not going to win in that scenario. So in that sense, a bit of a hiding to nothing in in 2019. But that didn't matter because he didn't care about the external perceptions. He just focused on doing the best job he could do within Williams and at the same time knowing that Mercedes needed to be impressed by by whatever he did. And I like that that George was so open to the idea of that being a good opportunity for Williams to experiment that season. I think George learned a lot about processes that year and the best way to, to work with the team. The um the only thing I think he really missed from that first year at Williams was a chance to really race other cars a bit more aggressively. Um that came a bit more in 2020, I think. So 2020 was more valuable in in that regard. Um so there was a bit missing from that first year at, at Williams, but I don't really think there was a huge amount missing on Russell's side. And actually that wheel-to-wheel side of things, particularly on first laps, was something he did need to work on through the second and third season as well. A few times he was maybe guilty of slightly questionable car positioning on on first laps so that's something that that he was able to work at try and make come together and there was obviously that very long quest for the first points finish wasn't there because not only did he have that missed opportunity at Imola the Mugello race where he ran in the points for most of the race then made a poor start at the third restart and dropped back so there were people questioning about well he's not getting any points if he's any good surely he'd have actually scored some so I think also Mark there was some some pressure that was building up there, wasn't it? It was in a very low-level manner. It wasn't the kind of pressure you get as a top Grand Prix driver, but there was scrutiny that he was aware of as well, both from the outside and from the fact Mercedes was looking so closely at his performances. So he, he had to tackle what weaknesses there were, and there, there was plenty he needed to chip away at. Yeah, even when he was at Williams, he was seen as a future Mercedes driver, and you have to justify that almost in advance. And so, yes, he, he was very aware he's under close scrutiny. And um, also, he was he was able to take those opportunities to do something extraordinary 
when the circumstances allowed them to. And, you know, put it, putting the car into Q3 when it had no business being there. And that unbelievable lap he did on the way to Spa, we put him on the front row there. Um, the third position in, on the grid in Sochi, things like that, where opportunities sort of level things out a bit. And it would have been no disgrace had he just, you know, sort of put the car where it normally was. But no, every every time one of those opportunities came, there was George, there he is again. And it just sort of cemented that idea that, no, this this guy really is the, 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 the real deal. And um, it, it, it became... A matter of when's he going to be in that Mercedes? It it, it shouldn't be happening already. You know, there was a it, it was a building sort of feeling from pretty much everywhere. I think Connor would love to see him in a top car. I'd love to see him in a top car. When's it going to happen? And yeah, he he created that. He created that momentum. Yeah, and eventually, of course, it did happen. Although he did have that brief stumble at Imola where he managed to uh, have the collision with Bottas and perhaps didn't react to that initially in the, the the best possible way. That's probably the one time where he went a little bit too far with what he was saying off track, et cetera. So he quickly dialed back from that though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I think was telling about the Williams stint and the value of the first couple of seasons in particular is what Russell has said quite a lot since then, which is that he just, that, that Williams stint went on one year too long. He, he doesn't feel that that final year actually brought anything in terms of a benefit for him personally, and I think you'd I think you'd say that the proof of that is in his secure performance in 2020, isn't it? You know, I think that standing performance for Lewis showed that he was ready to to step up and, and and take on that that Mercedes drive. It was that final year where, um, you you know maybe the maybe the overall performance of the car was a little bit better than it was in in in, in 2020, and there were. A, there was obviously the chance to have a, a few moments of heroics like um, Spa qualifying, for example. But as a, as a general rule, he didn't he didn't feel that he progressed through through that year, and it was actually the step up to Mercedes at the start of twenty twenty two that brought with it a ton more lessons than he had in that third year at Williams. I guess it's an interesting question about whether it was actually better for him to do it for the fourth year rather than for the third year, because if he'd gone up in 21, he'd have been part of that Verstappen-Hamilton title fight. Obviously, that season was really intense. So almost it might have been a better season to integrate himself in 2022. There's no way of testing that or proving it. It's just an interesting thought. Maybe having that delay actually uh, paid off. But ultimately, I'm sure he'd have acquitted himself well even in 2021 because he was that level of a driver. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. 
In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Scott, we've talked a lot about the evolution of Russell on his way to Formula One. So where he is now going into 2023 Clearly, he's operating at a high level, but there is still room for improvement. So where do you think he still needs to make gains if he's able to seize control of the team and potentially assert himself over Hamilton, as difficult as that would be? Um, it's perhaps a slightly vague way of answering it, but I think he needs to prove that he can go with the car when when Mercedes turns it into the most, the most potent version of it. Um, obviously he had that weekend in Brazil or that race in the sprint race and the, and the Grand Prix in Brazil where, where he was able to win and he did a great job and that you can't take away from the job he did there. But within that is the fact that he, he wasn't the quicker Mercedes driver that weekend. Hamilton was slightly faster, but Hamilton was his own worst enemy because he didn't get as good a, um, first lap in as Russell did in, in qualifying. And then obviously Russell, uh, but Russell actually helped himself by binning it, didn't he, in, in Q3. Um, Russell did a great job in the sprint. And then in the Grand Prix, Lewis um, Lewis got involved in that incident with, with Verstappen and, and that all combined to make it a, a weekend where, where Russell could do the job. So there's no doubt that there's no doubt that he can hit the peak when he needs to. But I, I think he would like to see evidence and Mercedes would like to see evidence that if you take the second half of 2022 on balance, for example, when the car was... Um, more competitive, Lewis did have an edge on him in general. So I think that's something that he and the team will want to see addressed this year. See if Russell can 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 really be leading the team more when when that car is capable of um, doing doing the job. Is is Russell going to do it? Basically, the job he did in qualifying in Hungary, for example, and the job he did in the race in Brazil. See more of those moments through the year. And obviously a, a more competitive car will facilitate that. So that's one thing. Another thing is probably, I don't think this is a massive, massive problem for him, but I think a little bit better judgment in battle, I think is probably going to be a bit, going to be quite wise. He had three or four incidents in 2022. One or two of them were particularly regrettable. The I, I, really clumsy squeezing over Mick Schumacher on the run to turn one in Singapore, which George admits by, you know, he has said himself was probably out of frustration of where he was on track at the time. And the, the fact that the, the weekend was, was going away, had been, had, had gone away from him rather, and was really scrappy. And that was just a needless incident to get involved with. And he was lucky not to get a penalty for that. And obviously the turn one incident with, with Carlos Sainz, I still maintain that, Sainz's change trajectory on the exit of turn one, cutting back across, contributed because Russell's trajectory is set. So he's always going to hit the Ferrari, I think, when it comes back across. But I also think if Sainz doesn't move, George might hit him anyway because he's made that misjudgment on the inside. Um, you can't do that on turn one, um, especially when you want to be fighting for wins and fighting for podiums. So you need to minimise that. You don't you don't really see the, the, the top drivers just sort of clatter into 
each other that often. You go through that as a phase. Obviously, Max Verstappen has been guilty of it in the past. So it's, it was his first year running at the front. So you can excuse things like that. Other things like the movie tried to pull on Sergio Perez, for example, in France, I think was over ambitious and a bit aggressive, but wasn't too horrific. And he proved plenty of times, even against Verstappen in Barcelona and Interlagos, that he can go wheel to wheel and be stunningly good in those scenarios. So a bit more of that and a bit less of the slightly clumsy stuff, I think will be what that would do Russell the world of good this year, especially if Mercedes is fighting at the front more regularly. And Mark, in terms of those areas for improvement for Russell, are there any others you'd add? And what does that mean for the chance of him being able to beat Hamilton in 2023? Well, I say beat, I really should say outperform because you can beat without outperforming and vice versa. Does he have it in him to outperform Hamilton over the season and are there any other areas he needs to take a step in order to do that? I think when you've got a, a top car, he's the difference between a, a driver of Hamilton's calibre and, and Russell's is so small that it's probably not going to be decided. The outcome is probably not going to be decided purely on performance because the that difference is so small. It's going to be decided on random things. Um, you know, they, they, they will have a much bigger impact on the swing in terms of the points than, than any tiny difference in performance. I think, I think if the car is good and has a good wide operating window and is well balanced and it's quick in every type of circuit, then he can absolutely go toe-to-toe with Lewis Hamilton fight for a world championship and Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc and whoever. Um, where I think the when the car is imbalanced, and funny, funny enough, in the second half of the season, when the Mercedes became more competitive, it was because they'd found the little happy window, and it was a very, very small window, where it demanded to be run because of its other limitations, its aerodynamics and its, its suspension. But that gave it a trait in slow corners, which made it very, very um, yeah, difficult to predict. And it could turn around and bite at any time. And Hamilton was demonstrably better at dealing with that. He was just. He's still an amazing driver. Whether he's at his peak, whether he's slightly past his peak, his peak has been so high, he is still an amazing driver. And it's not a surprise, no matter how good a rookie is, a young driver is, that's coming alongside him, there will be days he just can't do that. Because, you know, just because. Um, but the, he's absolutely good enough to um, to go toe-to-toe with Lewis and the, see what the outcome, uh, what what events happen, and, and the, 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 if he wins or loses, it won't, it probably won't be because of a shortfall in performance. Um, but yes, and just picking up on the the, the, the first lap thing that Scott was talking about, the um, the incident with Joe Guanyu at Silverstone as well. Of course, that was um, he played a played a big part in that. Um, and slightly, yeah, the, the the ghost of that first lap performance thing that you he, he talked about at Williams is still there. He was, although I said he was great at Mexico in terms of qualifying, he did position himself badly at turns two, three, lost, you know, lost a place to Hamilton immediately and Perez subsequently. And that's just not quite reading it, you know, reading the, the position instinctively. Um, so yeah, those things, but uh, yeah, we're, we're nitpicking. The, 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 he is 
delivering at a at the level of an absolute ace. And yeah, you will find bits to nitpick about anyone. And he's first season in a, a top team. I don't think um, there, there's any real ground for significant criticism. The thing I'd add to to that just very quickly is what what Mark said about um, nitpicking is is so spot on because I think for every example we have picked up on for things he can do slightly better, there are plenty of case studies of him doing slightly better, you know, doing what we're saying he, he needs to do more regularly. So I can't think of anything he needs to do that we haven't already seen evidence he can do. If, if that makes sense, we've already seen glimpses of it at different times. And I think it's just a case of, um, the more experience he gets, the more comfortable he gets at Mercedes, he will just roll that out on a regular basis and that will turn him into a really, really formidable Grand Prix driver long-term. Yeah, and ultimately, the point you make about nitpicking, that's basically what happens when you're at the absolute top level. You know, the differences between who wins a championship and who doesn't win a championship, as Mark said, it can easily just be in the the noise of of fortune. But sometimes it can be little tiny areas in a driver that just add up to a very, very small difference that can swing it against them or for them if they're if they're stronger at it, which is why there's so few drivers who make the most of, of front-running cars and, and win championships. People always rightly say, yeah, it's the car that defines the performance potential. But drivers, you can get the absolute most out of it, not just over one weekend, one lap, but over the whole season. Very, very uh, small amount. But whatever happens, there's going to be very little headroom above the level Hamilton is operating out for Russell to slip into. So yeah, I do agree that the idea he's going to destroy Hamilton, that that just, I, I can't see Hamilton's level will be such to make that remotely uh, possible. But on that subject, Scott, can you see any way that Russell could jeopardise Hamilton's future with Mercedes? Because he is out of contract at the end of this year. And you do see this, don't you, when there's the changeover, if you've got the next generation star driver, they have a bit of a habit of displacing the guards. So is there any extent to which you think that can make a difference? Or do you think Mercedes will think whatever happens, actually, this is a great driver lineup, and if Lewis wants to carry on for a few more years, brilliant, Hamilton Russell's the future. I think the only time it might creep in might be at the very, very end of Lewis's career. So maybe Lewis's final season, for example, if Lewis has made his mind up in his head that, that that's it, he, he's, he's walking away at the end of it. If Mercedes knows he's walking away and, and obviously Russell is the long-term future, maybe something changes then. But even that's no guarantee because I can absolutely see whether, whether Lewis continues, whether Lewis leaves at the end of 23, 24, 25 or even beyond. I I do think Lewis has the, the capacity to be competitive right to the very end. So I think in all likelihood, it will continue with... Um, Russell just getting better and better because there is room for him to improve. And I think that could inevitably come with some problems because I think you will have two alphas in the in the team in terms of personality and in terms of performance. So that will be very, very interesting to, to, to watch um, and is only going to be more likely as George becomes um, more comfortable inside Mercedes. What it means in terms of um, Hamilton potentially upping his game is really interesting as well because um, one of the things that is so impressive about Hamilton and someone like Daniel Ricciardo has often talked about this is that that sustaining that level of performance in the way that he has has been absolutely phenomenal and you can only do that if you are just 
extraordinarily good at finding ways to up your game and just have fewer and fewer off days. And I think, I I still think that that Lewis could rise to the occasion if 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 George does find a way to to assert himself over Hamilton. I can see Lewis coming back at him. I don't think. I think if there's a if we say in 2023 if George is just emphatically better than Lewis over the course of the year and, and beats him, I don't think that means Hamilton's washed up or anything like that. I could absolutely see Hamilton coming back in 24. So there could be some problems for for Mercedes to manage over the next however long however many years this partnership runs together, but. It, I can also see it having a tremendous upside because it is a superb pairing. This is why I really like teams having two really strong drivers, getting the best available ones. Yeah, the number one, two, I can understand the argument for it. It can be easier to manage or whatever, but it's great to have two drivers who will push each other on, even if it can be difficult to manage at times. So I guess, Mark, we should relate that to what could happen this season in that if Mercedes is at the front fighting for the championship... I think it's realistic for us to say they should be expected to. They've learned the lessons of last year. They're still the team that won 15 championships in out of 16 over the previous eight seasons, so they should be up there, able to fight with Red Bull and hopefully Ferrari. How do you see that? the fact that they'll ha- they'll potentially have two aces in their pack up against Red Bull that likes Perez as the number two driver? Verstappen, Ferrari's sort of almost in between, isn't it? Where you've got, yeah, Leclerc is the star, but science is just this relentless force that just sort of keeps chipping away and generally will be hanging around there as well. So there's actually three different levels of two driver lineups across those top three teams that could intersect in an interesting way. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, historically, what's tended to happen in those situations is that the um, the, the, the team with the, the two number one drivers tends to win the constructors' championship and loses the, the drivers' championship because they share the points out between them. And the, the guy who is the unequivocal number one you know, will win the title. So, you know, in that scenario that you've outlined, it's um, it's another title for Max for Verstappen. <laughs> um, but the other interesting dynamic, looking at that, and again on the assumption that the, the three teams are, you know, competitive with each other next year, is... Um, the Lewis Hamilton Max Verstappen dynamic, which um, from 2021 we saw a little um, sort of reprise of in Brazil last year, 2022. If that continues, that could be very interesting for George. George could you know, be quite happy to let them get chunks out of each other and just not get involved. And uh, yeah, that, that's that's another way that the scenario could pull out, play out. That's without even. Um, Factoring in what part the Ferraris might might have, you know, if they come up with a, a competitive car again. So yeah, at this time of year, it's it's so fascinating pondering all the the possible ways that that it, that it might play out. And of course, you could get a scenario where if you do have, let's say, Hamilton and Russell are both competing for the championship and taking points off each other, where Mercedes tries to intervene and make one a number one or a number two. And that's going to be very difficult because seniority-wise, it says, well, it should be Hamilton. But Russell knows, every driver knows, that there's not many chances to win championships and you can't kind of settle into a subservient role. So that could create some fireworks. And the fact that they both realise that whoever is able to assert themselves or get themselves into a stronger position in the points early on could be in a stronger position to be that driver. So there's all those factors, and drivers know this, that their teammates and every set of drivers, every pair of teammates, they both want to establish themselves as the lead driver, no matter how good they present the relationship as. And I think that could make for quite an interesting 
dynamic. Obviously, it's all very much hypothetical at the moment, but it's great that there's a driver in the second Mercedes who can offer that because ultimately that's what we've lacked the past few years, haven't we, Scott? Valtteri Bottas, as we said before, operates at a good high level. He's a very good Grand Prix driver, but he's not a superstar. So whenever we were talking about can he be a emerging as a title contender, we were almost begging for him to surprise us and just become an absolutely brilliant driver rather than just a very, very, very good one. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think um, I think I'd just be absolutely fascinated to see how it played out if um, if if they were taking points off one another and. It doesn't even need necessarily any animosity to creep in or to get toxic. It, it's just the fact of how many times did you hear last year Lewis and George talking through things like they just didn't really care what was going on between the two of them because they weren't there to fight over fifth and sixth. And it just and I, it's the same with anything. It's the same with Alonso. I, I'm going to use the Alonso Ocon argument again, but it's like Alonso said at the end of the year, he didn't care that he was behind Ocon in the championship, which was absolutely not true. Alonso absolutely, totally, totally hated the fact that Alpine's problems had cost him that in the championship because he felt he should have been above not just Ocon, but also Norris. And I'm sure Lewis wanted to beat Russell last year, but there is definitely an element of truth to the fact that ultimately it doesn't, doesn't really matter like it's not the end of the world that you've been beaten by him and so George has finished fourth or fifth in the championship and you've only finished you can only finish fifth or sixth you know those positions just don't really matter as much if it really is going to come down to you get the better of your teammate and your world champion that's just a totally totally different dynamic and I and you cannot predict how that will play out because there's all sorts of things that will happen over the course of a season that will influence it. So that's what I want. I, I, I want to see George live up to his potential. I want to see the the I want to see how thrilling it would be to see Lewis um have another massive title battle and this time have it internally rather than externally with with Verstappen for for example. I want all of that. But most of all I'm just super curious to see how it would play out between the two of them. Would one get a decisive edge over the other or would it be so evenly matched that it comes down to Abu Dhabi and not to say that they're trying every trick in the book to get one over on one another but is it still staying absolutely squeaky clean and if it is then how absolutely fascinating that is as a sport just a pure sporting contest the bottom line says that world champion drivers have an edge of ruthlessness, so there'll always be something going on. It doesn't necessarily need to be all-out war, but I think they'll both be very much playing all the cards they can in the battle, even if it remains kind of civil and doesn't erupt into some massive controversy. But that's what we hope to see happening. The more drivers at the front, the better. If we can have Hamilton, Russell and the other four from the top three teams all up there and able to fight for race wins. That's absolutely the dream. Probably won't happen, but it could. And that's what this part of the season is all about. Well, thanks very much, Scott and Mark, for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there. Lots going on in F1, even in early January, and also things looking ahead to the season. Do check out our other podcasts, including our IndyCar podcast, Bring Back V10s, which is in Season 7, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. And remember to take a look at our live podcast on February the 12th in London. Check the link in the description. You'll be able to buy your tickets there. 
Well, Grand Prix Racing, as it's shown in the past few weeks, never sleeps, even in the off-season. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.